I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The last two or three weeks that I've spoken here, I've spoken about love, God's response to our love. The subject of love, many years ago when I've only preached about faith and rarely mentioned love, I always thought that love was sort of a cop-out message that people who didn't want to walk by faith substituted the demands of a faithful life with the joys of a loving life. But in the last old month or so, I've kind of had a little revival of sorts and a little mini revival in my heart as this message has become very wonderful to me about loving God and loving others and just the fact of love itself and what God intended for the word to mean and how he intended for the word to affect us not only with regard to others, but especially with regard to Him. And I want to speak this morning on the subject of how God loves us. Now, everybody knows this, but allow me to share this morning on that title, How God Loves Us. Because when somebody says to you, well, God loves us, God loves everybody, they say. Well, put that aside for a minute, but the question I would ask is, in what way does God love you? Can you tell me how, can you give me some examples of how God loves you? Because this is how God describes his love in Ephesians 2 and verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. The word agape or agapeo, the same word is used twice here. The only source of agape love or the God kind of love, of course, is God. And God has loved us with his unique love greatly. Now the question then remains, how can I identify that? What specifically did he do? Because it said he did it greatly. That means that the direction of his will was towards us and the effect of what he did has brought him joy. Remember Zephaniah 317, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. It says he will save, he will rejoice over thee with love. That's Old Testament. And he has done something that he describes as his love in a great sense. It is for us to find out how he did it and what it's all about. Because you see, as I've already said, love in definition at least in my definition, love is essentially a commitment. A commitment that you make of your own will and choice for the good and for the betterment, for the honor and for the service of somebody else. If you don't have that in marriage, you don't have much of a marriage. If a young man is going to marry a girl, and he's not going to commit himself and his resources to her well-being. In a lot of ways, a wife identifies how well a husband is doing and vice versa. If she's not willing to submit herself to this man and to love him and to live and do what she does for his well-being, this is what God has said in his word he wants from us. If you don't have a commitment in marriage, you have a lot of self-love and you have a lot of selfishness and you have a lot of arguing and consternation and you have a lot of trouble and bickering and a lot of I don't care what she thinks. Well, he just, and you have a lot of that because it's not a love that is directed by God. It is self-love. That's why we argue and fight. 
is because I find pleasure in expressing my passions towards you. If I let off some steam because I'm upset, I'm not surrendering to what God says about harnessing my passions and bringing them under the control of the Holy Spirit. I set that aside because I want to express myself. So we just get mad and throw a fit and fuss and all of that because it's not a commitment to somebody else's well-being. I would never commit myself to your well-being and then try to put you down. I wouldn't do that. I would, over, what do you call that, uh, put the, cru crucify that, thank you. Or in raising children. You know, every child is a commitment. When you bring a child into this world, the responsibility to you is to raise this child to be a citizen of God's kingdom, to make sure they mind, that they're decent, that they're mannerly, that they're proper, you don't let them get by with sassing and fussing and slamming doors and, and not obeying your laws or your rules or whatever you say. When you give in to that and you let them do their own thing, it's not the child you love, it's yourself you love. You don't want to hear that whining and that crying, so you do whatever you can to get them to be still. And consequently, it, it, the, the world and, and the church too is full of a lot of self-love. It's not love for God. You know, the Bible says if you love your child, you will chasten them early or B times, you spare the rod, you spoil your child. And then there's a verse that talks about hating. Because you see, God has outlined in his word the way he wants us to live with regard to marriage, children, everything in your life. And he gave us the 10 commandments to show that, that, that there is a commitment to God and there is a commitment to man. And he said, all the law and the prophets hang upon this, to love God and to love your fellow man. And we set so much of this aside so often in order to do things our way because we're not committed to God. We're not committed to doing things his way. We love our life. We love our way. We love our excuses. And we love all of the reasons that we give that we don't do all the things that we should do. Because essentially, we don't love the Lord. Now, we would never admit that. We don't want anybody to tell us that. Those are fighting words. You don't love the Lord, oh boy. Because you see, we love him verbally. We love in word, but we don't love in deed, like he wants us to. So that's why we assemble together. That's why we teach. Because we want to make clear what it is that God is saying in his word about what he wants. So if I love God, I surrender to him. And I base my life on what he says. I don't love my wife because she deserves it. I don't mind. But I am told how to love my wife. Do you hear what I'm saying? It is outlined for me in this word how I should love my wife or my children. I haven't always done it the way he said, but I've been given a second chance. Praise the Lord. But it's all right here. Now remember Jesus said clearly, if a man loves me, Remember John 14, 21 and 23. If a man loves me, he will keep my words. And then he said, I will love him. And I will manifest or disclose myself to him. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he loveth me. So if I love the Lord, I show that I love him by what I do with regard to what he said. And 1 John 2, he says, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. It may be in his mind, but it's not dwelling in his heart. It doesn't control his life. So we're all compelled. If you want to be a Christian, you do it on God's terms. If you want to walk with the Lord, you walk on his terms. 
Not mine, not some preacher, not some system's idea and dogma, but you go by his terms. If God said this is the way walk in, I don't care what man says or what mom or dad said. It's what God said that works. Anything less, anything else, and I'm not worthy of the Lord. I turn to Matthew 10 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. I'd like to say too that I'm not trying to be hard. I've had people say, boy, you preach hard. I'm not trying to be hard. We have had things watered down so much in our lives. We've had so many times that the minister or, or the preacher is so afraid that you might not come back or that you might be offended with the truth that they've modified the truth so you're not offended by it, but it doesn't work either. And we're not walking in the light that God wants us to walk in because it's not clear. God's words are not grievous. They're not hard. Even though in John 6, they said, Lord, this is a hard saying. Who can keep it? God is manifesting us, showing us just how vile self is. Just how resistant that old man, that old nature really, really is to the ways of God. It just shows us more and more the struggle is between obeying God and doing our own thing. And a lot of folks are beginning to learn that the only way we can ever peacefully enter into this walk is by getting on a cross. Listen to these words in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 34, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be those of his own household because if you're gonna walk the Christian life, at some point your loyalty and your dedication is gonna be challenged. Will you do it what God said or will you honor the way the family wants you to do it? Or a mother's wishes or a father's wishes which contradict God. Listen to this in verse 37. He that loveth, which is by shown in what you do, the choice you make. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That's pretty clear. We can't allow anything to get between us and God. If you say, well, I've lost a lot of friends because of my convictions. He said you would. In fact, it goes further than that. He said the whole world is going to eventually hate you. They're going to hate you. You think they hate Jewish people in the world. They're going to hate Christians. Well, they probably do in some parts of the world. They're going to hate you and gnash their teeth against you because of choices you've made. Choices that are seen in the life that you live. You will not compromise. You will not condescend to something else. You have made a decision to do things God's way because you have no other choice. If I put anything before God, he says, I'm not worthy. If I'm putting my family before God, and a lot of folks do, they put their job, their career, their fun and games, and you know, other things come up on Sunday and people will go do that rather than what they should do. Because that's what they love to do. They love the well-being of their child or their entertainment, or they love whatever we're going to do on Sunday besides being here, or any other time that we should do something besides what we do. Because that's they love themselves. They love what they do. They love the freedoms they have. 
And they're offended if you say, you can't do that and say you're worthy of the Lord. Oh, they get very offended. But that's what's happened through several hundred years of watering all of this down and letting people think they're all right because they are members of a church. It's not like the church loves the Lord. The church loves what promises are made to them about what they can have or what they can be or going to heaven. I love going to heaven. All things work together for good. Oh, I like that one. But it only works for those that love the Lord. And if people don't love the Lord, that really doesn't work as a lot of people are testifying to. I ain't, work, I ain't doing any better. I mean, it comes down to one supreme word in all of Scripture. One word that supersedes everything else in the Bible concerning a man and God, and it's the word love. And it's a deep and difficult word because it means a dedication and a commitment of yourself and your time and your resources in America to commit yourself to live a life that is outlined and in harmony with this book. And anything less is not good enough. You say, man, that's kind of hard. Well, Jesus said that the gate that leads to eternity, the way that leads is narrow, and he said, only a few will find it. Now, you wonder why that verse in the Bible, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, fear and trembling in America. It doesn't mean anything less than what it said, fear and trembling. If you love the Lord, this is the thing that, that you do. You have to put God first. Remember Psalm 73 and verse 25? The psalmist said towards the end of that psalm, he said, whom have I in heaven? And who upon this earth do I desire more than thee? He came to the place. Maybe we wrestle in the early stages of our life and in the adjustment and the growth but the psalmist came to the place in which he looked at all he had. He's a wealthy man. He could have anything he wanted. Thousand wives, what a mess. Everything he wanted. And he said, whom have I in heaven but thee? I'm not looking for St. Peter, St. John, or any other saint. Who have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on this earth that I desire beside thee. Not my best friend, not my new dog, not my new boat, you. This is a man who in his life came to realize what all of this is all about. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. Concerning God's love to us, verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Now again, we haven't identified the specific things that displayed his love to us. We know a lot of them by heart, but allow me to approach that in a minute. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. And then in verse 19, he says, we love him. Why? You realize that the world is incapable of loving God unless God first loves them. And I hope you know that the world does not love God. And God told us not to love the world. That Jesus did not pray for all the people in the world to be saved. He said he prayed for his own. He didn't pray for everybody. He prayed for the ones the Father gave him. Pray that it was you. 
For that's whom he committed himself to. If Jesus came to save the whole world, he failed. Because the whole world will not be saved. Oh, wow. Where are my Calvinists this morning? <laughs> but if Jesus came to save me, and that process is going on, I am so thankful this morning. What can separate you from that? What, pray tell, could happen on this earth that if God sets his love upon you, what can unset it? You say, well, what if you don't want to love him back? Let me tell you something. God is very capable of doing whatever he has to do to cause you not only to understand love, but to express it back to him. And you'll be so thankful when you get to heaven that he did it all. Amen. He not only paid it all, he did it all. And you got to benefit from it. For one reason, because God loves you. He didn't have to. He was not required to. The Bible does not say he loves everybody. He displayed his love to the whole world. He showed the world what love is. But it only worked for a few. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, it says that God is love and he that dwelleth in God dwells in love. And you dwell in love, you dwell in God, and God dwells in you. This is what we call a relationship or an abiding. John 15 talks about an abiding. We love him because he first loved us. Love is of God. Look at verse 7. Love is of God. In verse 8, God is love at the end of that verse. Verse 10, herein is love. God is trying to tell us what love is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's verse 19 all over again. Then you get down that 16th verse where it says God is love. He adds this to it. God is love. Now, if you dwell in God, then you are essentially dwelling in love. When God saved you, he committed himself to you. He committed his resources and his power and his might to take the vilest one in this room and so change you that when it's over, he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He can do that. Does it still say this in Philippians 1 and verse 6? He that began a good work in you will finish it or complete it? That's not happening to a lot of people. So the question, is that happening this morning in us? He that began a good work didn't say, well, he started, but we wouldn't cooperate, so therefore it didn't work. He that began a good work will finish it. Now we're becoming Calvinist. He that started will indeed finish because he is able. And the whole design, everything that he is doing here is an expression of his love for you. You say, well, what about the backsliders? Read Hosea 14.4. Said he'd bring them back because he loves them. Oh, but they got away. Well, how long did they get away before he brought them back? He didn't let you go. He engraved you on the palm of his hand. He says he knows his own. John 10, he knows who his own are. He said he engraved you on the palm of his hand. A mother with a suckling child could sooner forget that child than he could forget you because he's committed himself to you. This book tells you over and over, ask what you will. Your father's waiting. Heaven's gates are open. Speak. Ask what you will. 
and it shall be done. Your father loves you. He's invited you to come up and be seated with him in heavenly places. In fact, to enter into a place which is called the secret place of the Most High. You. Little old insignificant you. To dwell with him, to abide with him, to talk with him, to commune with him. Out of that experience, become more consecrated and yielded to him. It's a growth. Until finally we walk in such a way that there is nothing that can keep us out of his way. Even if it's death. Oh, we got faith. We don't believe in dying. Well, I'll tell you something. Like John said the other night, you better rethink some things. He told the church at Smyrna, he said, be faithful unto death and you shall receive a crown. You're going to die. Just hold on to what you got. Die believing if you have to. Die holding fast. In that case, they had to. Whatever situation you find yourself into, you're faithful because God teaches you not to murmur, not to complain, not to whine, cry, give up, look back, or quit. This is the compelling force within us. Something inside that we have learned, that we have been taught, has found a lodging place in our heart. It's taking control. It's getting rooted. It's becoming the way that we live. And we cannot look back, turn back, or go back, not because we mechanically are walking with the Lord, but because it's the desire of my heart to want to. It's a Christian life. It's all about Jesus. And your life is all about whether or not you love the Lord. Or whether we're trying to manipulate this book so we can get something from God. Whether you get anything or not, you are required to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your might, with all your mind and all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbors are not always easy to love. Neither were you. But God said, you love others as I have loved you because he puts up with a whole lot of us. How many of you believe that God is long-suffering to you? Look how snobbish some of us have been in the last year. I was just convicted the other day when I was alone about how many ways in my life I don't love the Lord. That's embarrassing. How many times, you know, leave me alone. It's my time. Don't bother me. I'm not talking about major things. I'm just talking about attitudes. Attitudes that were more about me and mine and him and his. And just some conviction came in. I think, man, I, that was good for me. That was good. Because you see, love is not just talk. We're not just the church of the verbalites, charismatic verbalites. We're doers. First John, was it 318? Love not in word only, but in deed and in truth. Our life this morning, everybody in this room, is a demonstration. The words we use, the way we act, choices we make, is a demonstration of whether or not we love the Lord or we love ourselves. Life has only two choices of who you serve. You serve either the creature or the creator. There's no other choices. You serve yourself or the things that benefit you or you dedicate everything to God and trust him to give you the time and the resources and whatever to enjoy whatever else is here. He gives you richly all things to enjoy, but never as a replacement for him. Always willing to walk away from whatever you have. Always willing to give it all up, if necessary, to go to the cross for it. Because your commitment is not to your way, but to his. And you are so thankful 
for the blessings you've had in this life and all the benefits you've had and all the freedoms you've had and the joys you've had and all the good times you've had. God has blessed us. I know Bonnie and I can say, I know a bunch of you can, that the last 41 years has been a real ride. It's been so good. I'm so glad that a long time ago, in the 40 and two thirds of a year ago, that God opened our eyes to how to live and how to walk by faith. I didn't know the love part then, but I realize now that the more you walk by faith and you draw nigh to God and you partake of what he has, as time has grown and as the gray hairs came, you begin to realize it's not things anymore that bring you peace, it's him. It's all about Jesus. Things of this world will fade away and as the song says, grow strangely dim, but God, oh, God is gonna bless us and keep us. Go back to the book of Ephesians, if you will. I wanna get started in just a minute. Ephesians 3, verse 14. This is a prayer. We had a prayer in Ephesians 1, which we quote every week, every month. Then there's another prayer in the same book in chapter 3. Now notice some things here that are said because we're talking about love. Verse 14. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named the kingdom of God that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Whew, what is that? Let me just throw that last part out and you think about it, all the fullness of God. How big is that? Now, if this is impossible, then we're being misled. Because he said that you might be. If we can't be, then why did he say that? So this is something that can be. Let's go back at the word grant. You see the word grant in verse 16? That he would grant. The word grant means to permit, to allow to bestow, to impart, to give. Who does the giving, the bestowing, and the granting? God. That he, God, would do what? Would grant you. Now, is there any other way for what follows the word grant to happen other than God doing it? Okay, so let's remember this. Nothing that I'm gonna say about these four things here that he wants to do for us None of this can happen unless he does it. He's got to do it. We can't earn it. We can't get so smart that we come into it. It's all a granting or a giving. It's what we call graciousness. Notice, he said that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And he's able. The riches of his glory, first of all, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. In other words, strengthened and might are words that describe things like being stable and capable or able. Knowing how fragile man is and how easily some people quit, give up, fall away, or find excuses, Paul says, 
I pray that God would grant you to be strengthened with might by his spirit. Of course, you've got to receive that first. That you might be made strong, able, and stable by what the spirit of God does on the inner man. You've got an outer man, and you've got an inner man. The outer man is perishing, he's dying. The inner man is being renewed in 2 Corinthians 4, day by day. It's like Ephesians 1, that God would open the eyes of your heart, that man on the inside where the true spiritual life emerges. Your mind fights you. Your heart is where you bring the word. It's where God puts the word. Thy word have I hid in my heart. God puts his word in your heart, sends the message of this is what we're going to do to your mind. Your mind says, oh man, that's going to cost me a lot. I'll be persecuted. Nobody will understand. And you've got to overcome and crucify that. That's where it is. But... He hides this word. He puts this word in your heart. And he said, when this word begins to take hold, you become strong. You become one of those people who can draw aside somebody else and encourage them because you know what they're going through. You've been there and you made it and God brought you through. The man on the inside gets strong and stable. He doesn't yield to sin and weakness because of the work that God is doing on the inside. And the second thing he talks about in verse 17 is a relationship. You can't have a relationship with God unless God has first a relationship with you. Can't be done. There's no study course made by man that can make this work. God must draw nigh to you before you're able to draw nigh to him. He loves you before you can love him. He chose you. You didn't choose him. And in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Dwell is that word that we used a while ago in 1 John 4, 16. It has to do with a relationship. It's a communion. It's a togetherness that two people have. And it happens by invitation. God invites you to be joined to him. He invites you to be yoked up with him, to walk with him, to learn his ways and so forth. It's an invitation. It's a privilege. It's grace to undeserving sinners. And God brings you to him. And he says he wants you to dwell with him. That's a relationship. What about that verse that says in the Bible, uh, you, uh, what's this mean? Knock and what? If you open, what happens? He comes in and what do he do? He sups with you. It's fellowship. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Here's the invitation. If any man will open the door, I will come in and I will sup. As I said a couple of weeks ago, a whole lot of doors are being knocked on. Ain't nobody home. Nobody's home. They don't care who's at the door. They found another way of living. But for those who do hear, those who do open, he said, I will come in and I will sup you. That's relationship. That's where growth begins. That's where the journey through life begins to have its initial moment. You begin there and it's a growth from glory to glory to glory. And the third thing he mentioned is to comprehend in verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all saints. Notice this, comprehend means to understand. Listen to me. What good is it for us to read this or to preach about it if we don't know what it's talking about. What good is it for us to read six chapters every morning or read two verses every night if we don't know the meaning of them? 
It's like the love of Christ. We can sing songs, beautiful hymns about the love of Christ. Oh, beautiful hymns. But mostly they're just hymns. They're passionate songs that somebody wrote that we like the music and the mood of the music and we like to sing it. We don't really know what it's all about, but we like what we get from it. But he says, I pray that he would grant you to comprehend and to understand the love of Christ. The length, the breadth, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ. How do you do that? Let me tell you about the ministry of teaching. I can't say that I'm a teacher, but I know something about what it does. Preaching is a declaration, declaring the words of God. Teaching is explaining them. It's not a very exciting ministry to say the most. People like the excitement. They don't like to be informed too much because information brings conviction. And conviction is a stirring that kind of takes the bubbles out until you deal with something. It's one thing for us to say, God loves us. Now, let's explain, what does that mean? I've been in trouble for 35 of my 41 years in the Christian faith because of that, just explaining what it meant. As I see it, this is what it says. This is what it means. The church is full of cliches. We love God. How many of you all love God? Everybody raise your hand. Praise the Lord. We need to go on with God. We're moving with God. Well, what does that mean? I don't know, but it's what we're doing. You don't have a clue what you're doing. You've just learned how to say all the right things and everybody goes, woo, about, but you don't really know what any of it means. Now, the teaching ministry is to explain to you what it means. I guess that's why it gets quiet on occasion. It's either quiet or no anointing, one of the two, or it's dull or no anointing. But the ministry of teaching, when it's anointed and when it's functioning and flowing, it's God identifying what it means so you can comprehend it or understand it or get it. And that's why as some of us go through things and God shows us things a little more clearly than we've seen them before, you find yourself going, mm, 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 mm. I got located this morning. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, but I haven't been living right. That's a good thing that you got identified that you haven't been living right because now you got a chance to live right. I don't know if I want to give up something. Well, now you got to make it. You're at the crossroads. Who do you love? You love what you do and you love what you got or do you love God? We're all going to be located before we get there anyway. So God is speaking to us. He says, I want you to understand the love of Christ. And notice in verse 19, he says, the love of Christ was past his knowledge that ultimately forth you might be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm not sure I could explain that to you. I wish I could just clearly identify and make all of that clear. But to be filled with all the fullness of God, that's way out there. It's like the word love. Who can know it? Who can understand all that love is about? It passeth knowledge. Love does. Because of the immensity of what it does. The purpose of love and the design of love and what God himself as a loving God does to show what he is. And for us to be filled with the fullness of that. Remember that verse in 
Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. You ever bat your eyes over that and say, Ooh. I think there's some of these things that the light is yet to come in its fullness, about, but it's there for us to see it. The key here is back up in verse 17, being rooted and grounded. Being rooted and grounded, that is in what it means, how you make application of it, and the design of it. The love of Christ dwelling in God the fullness of God. Maybe we just need to just put our life in pause and draw nigh to God and say, would you explain to me, Lord, by your spirit to this? I pray there's something in here. Would you show me what all of this means? I would like to be overwhelmed with it. I would like to be put on my face with it. I'd like to see it like you meant for us to see it. I want to be affected by it. That's what Paul is saying when he says in verse 16 that God would grant you these things, that all of these things would become real and effective in your life. Now, he first loved us. We started, that was the title of the message, How God Loves Us. So I'm going to ask you the question again, how do you suppose he loved us? Love does something. Love is never an abstract word. Love is always demonstrated with something. It's like faith. Faith and love go together. In fact, faith without love is nothing. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 13, if I have faith to move mountains, have all knowledge, and on and on, and I have not love, if my life is not motivated by love for God's people, and to be used of God for their good, then whatever I'm doing that promotes me is vanity. And that's why God will say, I never knew you. You promoted yourself, not me. You loved yourself, not me. Let's go to John chapter three and ask the question, how does God love us? How does he do it? What did he do? In what way can we say, God in this way has loved me? Now, all Christians say that God loves everybody. God loves us all. In what way? Now, if you ask me, does my mother love me? Did my mother love me? I'm sure she did. In fact, I can reflect back in my life of all the things she did for my benefit. The sacrifices she made for my well-being the things that she allowed herself to go through so I would have comfort or that I could go through at least one year of college. And she took that horrible job to support me for one year and I complained the whole year like a baby. Yes, she loved me. Now she slapped me a few times and whipped me a whole lot. But she didn't want me to grow up to be a, a rude and unkind person like so many today are so rude. I think, did you have a mother or a father? Did you, I mean, was there anybody in your life to tell you right from wrong? Did anybody care how you act? My mother thought it was important to act right. I'd got pinched in public, so I hated pinching. <laughs> I hated slapping and pinching, and a lot of times I'd say, Mom, would you quit it? 
but I wouldn't say it in a, our ugly way because then you get slapped. <laughs> but she loved me in spite, well, whom God loves, he slaps. <laughs> God chastens all his children because we all need some fixing. Now, he may not slap us like that, but events in life are like slaps. Wow. But anyway, John 3, 16, this is the first way he shows that he loves us. God so loved the world that he gave. Love does something. He gave. He gave his only begotten son. He said that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Point one. God loved us by preparing for us a sacrificial lamb who would shed his blood on our behalf that out of his death we might have life. No other way. Paul said this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth within me who loved, who loved me and there you go, who loved me and gave himself for whom? Why did he do it? That's right. Whisper it. Because he loved me. Why did Jesus give himself? Why did God, knowing that we're a bunch of sinners, why did God prepare a sacrificial lamb and put him into a vile and ugly world that hated him? Even his own people hated him. And he was a lamb without spot or blemish who knew no sin who died the way he died, for whom? How many of you know where the book of Romans is? Chapter 5 and verse 8. If you're an evangelist, you know what it says. Romans 5, 8. But God commended. Now we're close, aren't we? But God commended his love for us. When? When, 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 when? While we were yet sinners, what did he do? So we weren't good people when Jesus came to die, were we? We were that vile crowd that crucified him. We were that ugly bunch down here that turned our backs like Peter. Like all his disciples, they fled from him because they don't want to lose their life for him. That's why when Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I can't love you the way you want me to. I don't. I've proved I don't. But I'm fond of you. I like you. And I enjoy you, but I, I, I love myself. He said, feed my sheep. He said, at the end of your life, Peter, you will love me. He loved us while we were sinners. While you were drunk and acting a fool. While you were carousing and doing every vile thing you should not do. Jesus died for you. I wouldn't have died for me. I'm not sure I would have died for you. But he did. No wonder there should be in our hearts a daily thankfulness to the ultimate sacrifice. Soldiers have made the ultimate sacrifice because they were dedicated to following the rules and doing what they were told. It cost them their lives. It's costing us our lives too. You love your life, you lose it. You lose your life because you love him. We read that in Matthew 10. But God so loved the world, and Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. That's what it means. That's one of the great ways he did it. 
If he didn't do anything else, he did that. And then he gave me what to believe. He gave me faith. He loved me enough to say, now, this whole business of Jesus on the cross and dying and the resurrection it doesn't mean much to you. You're blind. You can't see it. You grow up listening to it in church and Sunday school class, and you still live like a fool. You go to church because you ought to. One day, God will move the scales from your eyes, and you'll see it. And godly sorrow will come upon you, and you'll weep because you're an ugly person. You're really a nasty and vile person. And God will love you. And he will grant you the gift of repentance. And you will be able, because of his godly sorrow, you'll be able to say, God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me of my sins. Because if he doesn't do that, you'll never be sorry for your sins. You'll make excuses for your sins. You're no worse than anybody else who goes to church. If they're going, I'm going. But you never repent. But God loves you enough that he will cause you to repent. And the second thing he does in Ephesians 2, let's begin in verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Were we? Are any of you this morning still dead in your sins? Okay. Wherein, verse 2, in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in all these disobedient children, among whom also we all had our manner of life in times past in the lust of our flesh. Didn't we? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature, naturally, the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved. That's what he did. He gave you the new birth. He allowed you to be made a new creature. That is, he quickened you. He relifed you. He gave you life you'd never had before. Made us alive. At that moment of sorrow and deep regret for all of my past sins, and I had more than any of you. Well, then whatever you want to say. I think I was the chief of sinners. I do. I really do. Because of my attitude in sinning. And yet for all of that, one day, June 30th, 1968, God gave it to me. He offered himself. Here's this lamb, this lamb that was innocent and died in my behalf, whom God raised from the dead, verifying that he really was innocent, that he really was not a sinner. And he walked into my life knocked on the door of my life 41 years and 12 days ago and offered to save me. And I remember at the time, any other time, I would have said, Lord, I'm a basketball coach. I, I've been so bad, I can't just change. But that particular day, I didn't care what I was or what I had been. I needed what he offered, and I took it. And while I was afraid I would go back in my sins and never would change, it didn't turn out that way. And all these years, he has 
been in control. I cannot but thank God for that. I mean, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. Whom he hath redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. Hallelujah. You know what else he did? Look over in Colossians. Go two books to the right. Pass Philippians into Colossians chapter 1. This is the third thing that he did in verse 12. See, all of these are sermons. We're just mentioning these because this is what he did in loving us. Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us to be qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who hath what? Delivered us. We've been delivered. We sing the song, I've been delivered, oh praise the Lord. And a lot of people really don't know what that means. They like the song and they say, we've been delivered, praise God. But what does it mean? Well, that's why you teach on You teach on what deliverance means. Not only deliverance from sin and the power of sin, but there's deliverance from demonic oppression and even possession and all kinds of demonic things. Deliverance from alcohol, drinking, lust, pornography. You can be delivered from anything the devil was in control of in your life. Anything. Anything. You resist the devil, he flees from you. That's what he said. We've been delivered. Jesus has made it possible. He's loved us enough that he doesn't leave us down here under the control of dark spirits. He comes down not only to save us, but to deliver us, to open the eyes, to see, to give a desire, to want. And then when we ask for it, he gives it to us. And it was all this work of God. He did it all because that's what he does. Look in Romans chapter 8, if you will. Jesus said, I give you power over serpents and over scorpions and over what? All the power of the enemy. Can he do that? Can Jesus do that? Let me ask you something. Who else can do that? Nobody. Think of it. I give you power over your weaknesses. Over those things you make excuses for. Well, I can't, I try, and I ought to, but I... He gives you power over that. You've been delivered from the dominance of weakness in your life. You don't have to be weak. You don't have to be under looking up all the time. He's made you the head and not the tail. Above and not beneath. He's made you to be Blessed going out and blessed coming in, in the city, in the field, wherever you are. He's delivered you from poverty. People stay there. It's not his fault. Either they have never had it identified and never been taught how to get out of it, or they just figure that's just the way it is in life. How sad it is and how tragic it is that the teaching that a lot of people have had in church has kept them in bondage. I guess that's why I shall always appreciate the things I heard years ago like a Brother Freeman's tapes. Because my eyes were open, I've never gone back. A lot of people who saw things in those days have already gone back because they didn't believe all that. Boy, it worked for me. I don't know why it didn't work for everybody else. I'm just so glad today that 41 years and 12 days ago, I came to the Lord and the light began to shine. And in the middle, I'm so glad he's so long-suffering because I've been a crybaby a whole lot of my life, my Christian life, just a crybaby. <laughs> and God has been good. 
I know you haven't been, but I have been. But he says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, Nay, in all these things, we are what? Are we or not? Through what things? Well, the verse I was going to end with, I'll read it now. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Does he love you? Well, what's going to make him stop loving you? Who shall separate us, U.S., from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? How about distress? What about persecution? A lot of people quit over that, haven't they? Or famine. Nakedness, that'd be poverty. Or peril, that could be what's about to happen in this country. Or the sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are what? We are more than conquerors through Christ. Who loved me and he gave himself for me. Yes, he did. Wow. I love that. Another thing he has done. He loved us by making provision for all of our needs and inheritance. This is a long sermon, but it's a wonderful point. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. All your needs. All means all. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, For your Father knows that you have need of all these things. He didn't say, If your Father knows you'd like to have all these things. He said, Your Father knows you have need, N E E D, of all these things. Now, I want that. I do. I want to be healed. I want to prosper. I want to do well. I don't want to do it the way man does it. I want to do it the way God does it. You don't tell your needs to anybody. You don't try to finagle money out. We don't even take up an offering. We just want to make sure that everybody is between you and God. And he knows our needs and he'll supply our needs. And then we give him the glory. for. we can't praise a man for it. We praise God for it. I just think that that's a good way to do it. But if we get proud about it, we need to pass the bucket so we can quit saying that. But he said he would supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Luke wrote in Acts 20, he said, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst all them that are sanctified, that is set apart. Give you the inheritance. Do you know you have an inheritance? Did you know that? I don't know if you know that or not, but you do. Ephesians 1 and verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of what? His inheritance in the saints. Do you know that he has an inheritance in you? Do you know that you have an inheritance in him? He gives you himself, you give him you. You mesh. You become one with the Father. And the love that the Father had for Jesus, Jesus gives to you so that you can give back to him. As the Father's committed himself to getting you to heaven, you commit yourself to going there. Following Jesus all the way there. It's how you love. This is how he's loved us. In Colossians chapter 1, two books over again, and verse 12. He said, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us qualified to be partaker of what? 
of the inheritance of the saints who are brought into his light. Do we have an inheritance? Do we have one or not? Or are we just poor wayfaring strangers a wandering through this land of woe? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and look over where my possessions lie. It's over there. Go after it. Don't stand over here in sorrow about, oh, someday over yonder I'll get mine. Just cross the lake and eat the cake and it shall be fine. <laughs> Quit singing and start marching. Amen. Fourth thing, he loves you and he gives you faith. He gives you faith. Did you know that your ability to believe is a gift? Your ability to count on God for whatever you can count on God for is something that God gave you. You can't get it any other way. You see, I believe, and I might vary with some people in our circles over this. Wouldn't be the first time I varied, I'm sure. I do not believe you can just pick up the Bible and read a verse, act like it's true, and call it faith. If you can do that, you don't need any help from God. You only need to know how to read, and you all just need a good IQ. But faith doesn't come to the highest IQs. <laughs> it's all right. Say amen. <laughs> God chooses to give us the one thing that is necessary to get something from God. That's faith. He didn't have to do this, but he loves you enough to do it. He gave you the faith of Jesus because, what do you say in Ephesians, back in Ephesians 6 and verse 23, I think it's towards the end. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God. Does your Bible say that? Love with faith from God. Could we say this, that a faithful person like John was talking about, that's what the Bible means by faith mostly. If you are faithful to God. You're committed to being faithful to God. It's because you love God. If you're trying to act like you're what you ought to be, but it's not because you love the Lord, it doesn't doesn't count. Circumcision doesn't count anything. It's faith, Galatians something, faith which worketh by love. In other words, well, how does that work with healing, deliverance, prosperity, protection? Are those things that God has promised? Has God promised to heal you or protect you or deliver you? Is there a word you can find that says that? Is that God's will? It didn't come from you, did it? It would benefit you, wouldn't it? Then how do you get that? Well, you don't go get it because, man, I want this. I want. You don't try to manipulate that. You start approaching God and believing God, using your faith for that because it's his will. That's his will. That's his will. I want it because he gave it. I grew up poor. I'm willing to be poor. I was willing to be sick. I was willing to do without. I just figured that's just the way it was. And I got my eyes open. That's not what he wants. Therefore, he gave me something that I could, you know what? I thought, I can believe this. And I did. I believed for a lot of things. I believed for a car once. The church about split over that. Well, they didn't, but they had a 
what are you doing? And I got the car. They said, teach me. Teach me how this works. And I can say after 40 years, a few people got this. Not everybody, but a few did. The world's still the source for most people, but God has a better way. It's just something that God gives. It's a product of his word. If you love his word, you love what it does. And you love what it does because that's what pleases God and brings him glory. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But if your faith isn't a product of the love in your heart, I want to do this because it pleases God, it won't profit you anything. I can't think of a bigger word in the Bible this morning. It's like 1 Corinthians 13 again. He said there is faith and there is hope and there is charity or love. He said the greatest of these is love. That's the one that goes into eternity. The other two stay here. You won't need faith in heaven. Trust me. You won't have to believe for anything in heaven. If you have to believe and you don't, you can sin. Well, you can't sin in heaven. Psalm 145 and verse 20. I'm going to preach three hours next week. I just heard of a man that did that. Can you imagine three hours? It better be good. It better be good or my roast would be burning at home. I remember years ago when Hobart Freeman came to the Christian church in Charlestown, 1970, spring. And he was teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he said something in Hebrew. Of course, some of us held our breath. And he said, now that was Hebrew. And this is what I said. Then he said something in Greek. He said, now that was Greek, and this is what I said. And then he spoke in tongues. <laughs> and he said, now that was tongues. And here's what I said. And two or three of them got up and filed out of the back. And he said, well, I guess the roast is burning. <laughs> I never forgot that. A seventh thing is preservation. He not only sent his son to die for you, he not only made you to be quickened or be born again, he also provided deliverance. He has also made provisions and an inheritance for all your needs in this life. He's given you faith to activate all of this. And finally, he's committed himself to preserving you. Wow, Calvinism. Remember T-U-L-I-P? The P is preservation of the saints. Listen to this. This is just one of many verses. Verse 20. The Lord preserveth all people. You know who he preserves? It doesn't say he preserves everybody. Only God can do this. It's like the word of God that you're holding in your lap. How many times has it been burned and destroyed through the years? You think God is able to preserve his purity and hand it down to us as he intended for it to be understood? He's done that because he's God. There is nobody in this room that's too hard to keep saved. There's nobody in this room that God cannot do whatever it takes to get you into heaven. He can do it. He can keep you from falling away. He can keep you from quitting. He can do whatever he has to do so that when you stand before him, he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Nobody else can do this but God. Why would he do it? 
Because he loves his own. He doesn't call his own wicked. He said the wicked shall perish. Didn't he? The devil and his angels. Those are not his own. He said he will keep his own. Boy, there's more to it than this. A whole book can be written about this. And it has been. Let me read it again. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but the wicked will he destroy. Are there two peoples here? One of them is basically all the world. And the other one are his own. What's the difference between them? Love. What is love? Those who not just attend church in goody two-shoes. I'm talking about those who have on the inward man a commitment to serve and to walk, to dedication of their life, all their resources to God. Speech, manner, dress, spending, any aspect of, of your life is surrender to God. You know why you do that? Because you love him. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray this morning that you would hold us firmly into your heart, that we would not go astray, that the grip you have upon us, the names that are engraved upon your hand, as we've sung so oftentimes, teach us thy way, O Lord. Your way is, is a way of love. Everything that is eternal and good springs from that source. Teach us. Help us. Deliver us. We bow our hearts and our heads in sincere thanksgiving to you who has made all this possible. We have earned nothing here. We deserve nothing here. We are worthy of nothing. But you've given us a way to live. You've given us minds to understand and that if we will heed what you say, you will bless us. I ask you to do that this morning. If there's anybody in this room this morning who's never surrendered their life to Jesus, may this be the day of their salvation, July the 12th, 2009. Do your work. Bless us this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Shall tribulation or distress, shall persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril or sword, from the love of our